about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, The Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of the rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed besides the road and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them, and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads, and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the regions of Ashwan. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Good evening. That seems to be coming through okay. Can I double check uh, that I'm coming through okay for those online? Looks good. It's really important that we're able to do both of these things at the moment uh, because there's every chance that we'll go back and forth. There's every chance that some of us will have to isolate uh, at some point over the coming weeks and months. Hopefully not. It's great to see some people in the building. It's really great to see you online 
I hope you're really well. Um, can I just say, I'm really excited uh, as we move out of lockdown. I'm, I'm excited about the next chapter uh, of the life of this church. We're probably going to you know, head to the end of the year. It'll be a bit bumpy, but then the new year lies ahead. And in God's providence, I'm hoping we have just wonderful steps to take. I'm hoping we see new people join us. I'm hoping we see one another built up in the faith wonderfully. I'm hoping being able to see each other and connect with one another again is a source of rich blessing. Uh, I hope you're excited like that as well. I just I feel that seeing some faces. It's not perfect yet, but God has been kind to us. Um, but let's pray now and then think about that wonderful part of Isaiah uh, and hopefully in ways that will keep charging us forward. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for these words from the prophet Isaiah and we ask you to speak them now to those of us who are here, to those of us watching at home and to others who may hear them in other ways in the future. Lord, please give your blessing to us and teach us of your son for his sake. Amen. One of the things I found interesting about the past couple of years is watching people try to give a name to the time we're in because of the pandemic. We've had a sense, I think, that we're in a a, a new kind of time somehow. Uh, Yet it's been hard to know what to call it. My favourite was actually at the very start of the pandemic when President Xi in China spoke of this special time. He said, in this special time... And at the time, it sounded a bit funny. Uh, but, somehow, but then, pretty quickly, we were all doing the same. We started speaking of a new normal, which just doesn't mean anything at all. Or we spoke of this time, or this difficult time. To be honest, this special time is starting to sound pretty good. It's an interesting instinct, I think, this feeling that we need a name for the time. We need, we need a name for what has happened. At the risk of getting a bit too philosophical, unlike me, I think it is because having a sense of time and what the time means is a core aspect of the way we understand our place in the world. Human beings need to know what, not just where we are physically, but when we are. We need to know where we fit in an unfolding story, in history, in what is happening. I think that's why we're often drawn to ideas like progress or to phrases like going backwards or moving forwards. It's also why I think we've, we felt that somehow we need to say what the event of this pandemic means. But what time is it really? What does the time we're in really mean? Is is that a question we can actually have an answer to? Can we say anything really solid about that? Well, the Bible says that we can. It says there is an answer. The Bible will tell us that there is actually a decisive name for the time that we are in and that it matters to know it. The time we are in is called the time of God's favour. The time of God's favour. 
It's a phrase we find in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8, our passage for today. But we need to do a bit of work to see the significance of this, though. What we're going to do, and there's an overview slide, I think, what we're going to do is first to try and get a sense of this passage and how it fits into, into Isaiah. We're going to look at Isaiah's hope. But then second, we're going to slow down over two puzzles raised by this passage. And that will lead us, finally, to understand the difference it makes to be able to say that the time we are in is called the time of God's favour. Okay, well, let's begin by getting to grips with Isaiah chapter 49. Uh, Last week, we looked at chapters 47 and 48, and these chapters finish with the incredible determination of God to save his people. If you're here with us, you'll remember God says, I'm going to save you, frankly, whether you like it or not. For my own sake, I'm going to act to deliver you, says the Lord. The Lord will redeem his people once and for all. Well, chapter 49 picks up here, and it sets out what this is going to look like. In a nutshell, what we see in verses 1 to 13, which is our our passage that was just read, thanks so much, Thomas, what we see is that this salvation God's bringing is going to come through the work of a servant, a servant of the Lord. The servant begins to speak in verse 1. Listen to what he says. The servant says, Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. This servant will be chosen and prepared even before his purpose, made ready for some grave purpose, like a special weapon prepared for war. Isaiah goes on to describe what this servant will do. Uh, Just jumping ahead a little, we'll come back to verses 3 and 4. In verse 5, we see that the servant is going to be the way that God restores his people Israel. And now the Lord says, and then it talks about who this, this, what, this, what this Lord is and what he's done. He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to himself and gather Israel to himself. You see, the servant is going to be the one through whom Israel is restored. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. But what God says here is that restoring Israel is not enough. This servant's going to do even more. Look at verse 6. He says, It is too light a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This servant is going to be the means by which everyone is blessed. Well, the rest of this passage basically celebrates this salvation and and what the servant will do. And it celebrates it in terms that are meant to connect with Isaiah's original audience, uh, the Jewish people who were captive in Babylon. If you remember the history, uh, Babylon had come over and, and taken over Israel and destroyed Jerusalem and the people had been taken captive. 
Well, here's what Isaiah says from verse 8. Have a look at uh, how he puts it. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you, and in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you a covenant for, all pe- for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inherence- inheritances. It's basically talking about how the land's been smashed to bits, but we'll, we'll, well, I'll, I'll, I'll put it back. To say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. This is a picture of Israel being restored, of those taken into exile, being set free and able to return and rebuild their lives in their homeland. It continues like this, they will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. These are images of the the returnees coming back and it all working for them. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. I think that was part of Egypt. And then it ends with this shout of joy. Shout for joy, you heavens, rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. So this is Isaiah's hope, right? The servant of the Lord will come and Israel will be restored and salvation will flow to the ends of the earth. Okay, that's Isaiah's hope. But it raises two puzzles, Two difficult questions. Here's the first puzzle. The first puzzle has to do with the servant. Who exactly is this servant? And, and what, what is he going to do to make all this happen? This is a tricky question because there are a number of possible candidates for the title of the servant. Now, the most obvious one is Cyrus, the king of Persia. I hope you've heard of him by now. We've talked about him a few times. Cyrus is the king who emerges out of nowhere in the, uh, the, the 500s BC and then takes over everything. In chapter 45, Cyrus is called the Lord's anointed, whose right hand God has taken. That's pretty strong language. In chapter 48, just last week, we saw this. God talks of his chosen ally who is going to deal with Babylon, which is what Cyrus actually did. So, is Cyrus the servant this is speaking about? But that doesn't seem likely, because Cyrus is never actually called God's servant. And also, the servant is described in terms that don't really fit Cyrus. Listen to how the servant speaks in verse 4. This is the servant speaking. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. That doesn't really sound like a triumphant warlord who now conquers the whole world. In chapter 45, furthermore, uh, it's... It says that Cyrus's success will be for the sake of Jacob, the Lord's servant. 
So the servant there is Jacob. And that brings us to a more likely candidate. Maybe the servant of the Lord is just Israel. That has much more to be said for it, that option. Israel, in fact, is called God's servant a number of times. Have a look back at chapter 41, verses 8 and 9, for example, if you want to. But in our passage, we see the same thing, so you don't have to flip in your Bible. Look at verse 3. This is the servant speaking again. The servant says, he said to me, that is, God said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Well, that seems fairly obvious, doesn't it? So the servant is Israel, is it? Is it just the people of Israel through whom God will bring salvation? Is that what's going on here? The servant is Israel, God's going to save through Israel. But that doesn't really make sense either. Because the whole point is that the servant is going to save Israel. Right? We've already seen that. And it doesn't seem at all like the servant... It doesn't seem at all like it's, it's Israel saving itself. In verse 5, as we saw, the servant is somehow different to the nation. It's the servant who restores the nation. And in verse 7, this is what we see. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred. Abhorred just means hated. To him who was despised and hated by the nation, to the servant of rulers. So here the servant is despised and abhorred by the nation. So the servant can't just be the whole people of Israel. There's a difference there. Okay, so what's going on with this servant? Before we answer that, though, we need to observe a second question raised by Isaiah's promises here. So this, that was puzzle number one, who is the servant? But here's puzzle number two. This one's not as obvious, but it is important. It's about the salvation Isaiah describes in the second half of the passage, when he talks about the time of God's favor and the restoration of the land and so on. What does all that refer to? Okay, why is that a puzzle? Because there is an obvious answer. The obvious answer is that that description of salvation refers to what was going to happen with Cyrus, and it actually did happen. Cyrus came and he conquered Babylon, and he let the prisoners go free, and they returned to Israel, and they began rebuilding the temple. It, it was an amazing moment. Um, the history, if you're interested, is recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Bible. Just look them up, it's actually a, a great story. But what happened still wasn't really as good as it seems to be here in Isaiah. In fact, compared to the way Isaiah speaks here, with mountains turning into roads and bursting into song and the land being healed, compared to that, what happened was, frankly, a bit of a disappointment. Returning from Babylon to Israel turned out to be really hard. In Ezra, it's recorded that when the, when the foundations of the new temple were laid, there were some people there who, had, who, had, who remembered the old temple. And when they saw the foundations of the new temple 
laid, Ezra tells us that they wept aloud because it was kind of lame. The returned community was small, politically fragile, very vulnerable. And as time went on, things kind of went from tough to terrible. Israel was conquered again by one after another foreign pagan empire, right down to Rome. It didn't feel like salvation reaching to the ends of the earth. And so this promise of salvation, like the promise of the servant, it left questions hanging. Questions not yet answered in a way that quite made sense. What Isaiah spoke of, it did seem to happen in a way with Cyrus, right? Cyrus came, the prisoners went free, and yet, was that really all Israel had to look forward to? It didn't seem quite right. And so had Israel really seen this servant yet? Well, you've probably guessed where this is going. It's not rocket science if you've been to church before, but for the earliest Christians, the answer to these questions became clear with the coming of Jesus. Jesus, the earliest Christians believed, was the servant. He was the true servant Isaiah had spoken of, and it was the salvation that he achieved that was the true fulfillment, fulfillment of these promises. Why did they think that? They thought that firstly because Jesus himself saw himself in these terms. The Son of Man, he said, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was the servant. Jesus was the one who would be despised and abhorred by the nation, ultimately rejected by his own people. He was the one whom the Lord called before he was born, who spoke his name from the womb of Mary. He was the one whose birth meant freedom from, for the captives, as Simeon and Zechariah sang at his birth. It's in Luke's gospel. Jesus was the true Israel who was brought out of Egypt as a baby, who passed through the Jordan in baptism and who gave the law from the mountain. And most of all, he was the one through whom God's salvation was poured out not just on Jews, but on the Gentiles, flowing out to the ends of the earth. No one was more clear about this than the Apostle Paul. But this is what grabbed Paul, that what God had promised in the prophets, he had now fulfilled in Christ. Listen to how Paul draws on our passage, Isaiah 49, verse 8. Listen to how he quotes that in one of his letters to the Corinthians. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Hoping it comes on the screen. Come on, screen. There it is. This is Paul writing, and he says, As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, and then he quotes Isaiah 49, In the time of my favor, I heard you. 
and in the day of salvation, I helped you. And then he, he rams it home. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Do you see what he does with Isaiah 49 verse 8 here? Now is the time, says Paul. Now is the time that Isaiah spoke of. Why? Because the true servant has come and has brought the salvation that was promised. Friends, it might seem like we've taken a fairly long road to be able to say that what Isaiah spoke of has come to fulfillment in Jesus. That Jesus was the true servant of the Lord and that he brought the salvation the prophets promised. But we've taken that long road to remind ourselves that it is actually quite a big deal to be able to say that. Now is the time of God's favour. That is where we are now. Because that is the time that began with the coming and death and resurrection of Jesus and will continue until he returns. This is the time of God's favour. The truest and best name for the time that we are in is not this special time, this difficult time, the new normal. It is not the modern day, or modernity, or post-modernity. It is not an age of enlightenment defined against a previous dark age. It is not the technological era, or the time of climate crisis, or a secular age, or a post-Christian era. All of those names might be true in some ways, but none of them gets to the heart of our time. None of them is the right name for the age we are in. No, the age we are in is called the time of God's favor, the day of salvation. That is where we are. It is the time Isaiah spoke of, the time when God's grace and redemption are being poured out on the world, a light to the nations, salvation to the ends of the earth. That is what this time is about. That is the age that you have had the unspeakable privilege of being born into. Let this sink deep into our consciousness, brothers and sisters, and into the consciousness of this church. Whatever pandemics and restrictions and opposition and difficulty we may face today, this remains and will always remain a very, very good time. Because it is the time of God's favour. Don't let anybody steal your joy that this is the name of the time we live in. This is a great time. The best of times, because it is the time of God's favor. The grace of God, his loving, saving power, have been poured out upon this world. And he invites everyone to come and share in it the light that is salvation for the ends of the earth. Don't, 
Don't let us be fooled into living on the basis of some different, less true name for the time we are in, brothers and sisters. Don't miss the chance to live with this name for the time as your guide. Don't receive God's grace in vain, as Paul puts it, which, which means losing the chance to live from this awareness. Give yourself to this moment, this time of God's favour. Okay, how are you going to do that? How will you let, how will I let, how will we let our ways in the world be shaped by knowing that this is the time that we are in? Well, perhaps what you need to do is to just let yourself rejoice. Repent of the ways that you have been living by a different clock, a different sense of the time, and rejoice that this is the time we are in. Perhaps that will give you permission to let go of some of your worries and see the world with more hopeful eyes. Perhaps knowing this will give you a deeper consciousness of the task and the opportunity of gospel mission. It's a pretty tough business telling your friends about Jesus or inviting them to church or trying to bear witness in your workplace if you only have in mind a sense that this is a hard time to be a Christian or a post-Christian age. But it isn't those things. Not at the deepest level. At the deepest, this is the time of God's favour. And we can go to the work of sharing the good news with confidence that this is the time when God's blessing is being poured out and salvation is flowing to the ends of the earth. There's no other time when that's meant to happen. It's this time. No amount of secularization theses or Peter Fitzsimon's columns, can change this. If you don't know Peter Fitzsimon, he's that guy with the bandana who, who writes kind of angry anti-Christian columns. It's, it's quite dull, uh, but there they are. I wouldn't bother Googling them, but you can. No, I'm not afraid of them, so. And you can't change this. Perhaps, too, this is a time for you to get excited about the mission of this particular church and to throw your weight behind it a little more. Or perhaps, just to finish, this is a time for you to think about supporting, giving to, and perhaps even opening yourself up to the work of mission, not just here, but around the world. I'm so glad... This sermon's coincided with the week we heard from Ben and Celia. I will make you a light for the Gentiles, says God to Jesus, that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. That is the glory that Jesus deserves. How will you be a part of that? Knowing that now is the time to get on board. Now is the time of God's favour, the day of salvation. Don't receive that grace 
in vain. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for this awesome news that you have given your own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, as your servant to restore the tribes of Israel and be a light to the Gentiles. We praise you and we praise you that this is the day of salvation. Let consciousness of that, that that is the time, sink deep into our hearts and minds and give us great joy. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.